my listeners. Welcome back to For What It's Worth. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Joe Coughlin of the MIT Age Lab, and we're going to dig into technology and independence. Dr. Joe, it seems like a lot of the new apps especially, but services available like ride sharing, like grocery delivery, like um, wearable technology, seemingly have you know some implications for improving independence for aging Americans. But is that what you're actually seeing happen? Uh, my team at the MIT Age Lab did an amazing thing. While we uh, left campus in March of 2020, like so many uh, from their workplaces, we actually kept fielding surveys every quarter to find out how is life changing. And so while many of us would say, geez, I wish life would just get back to normal, get over it. What the pandemic did is it actually served as a propellant, accelerating trend lines that we already saw. And among them, Paige, was the adoption of new technology. So the first part, we did see not just more interest, but more purchases across all age groups, mostly in fairness, amongst Gen X and the oldest of the millennials, but even the silent generation, those folks born uh, before 1946 and the baby boomers, to start buying the speakers, the tablets, the, the doorknobs that take a picture of you as you're knocking on somebody's door and the like. Essentially, they were investing in social connectivity and safety and security, and to add another S, of course, service, having things brought to the home. So we really believe that technology accelerated maybe two to seven years faster due to the pandemic of moving things out of the laboratory and into your living room than we could have ever anticipated. That's the first part. The second part was that the COVID uh, experience so far has actually done two things. It has profoundly changed how we live. You know, we, we used to like to tease, or at least I did in my cohort, like to tease the millennials and now Gen Z, uh, which, by the way, we're at the end of the alphabet. Does that mean nobody's coming after that? But anyway, Gen Z, as to being convenience starved, you know, they don't own a car, they own an app. They, they can't make dinner, they have it delivered. Uh, you know, they can't fix a doorknob, they have it fixed by, a, by app. Guess what? The baby boomers and the silent generation, they thought they were nuts at first, but during the pandemic, they said, you know, this is pretty cool. And the data is showing they're not going back that, you know, having things delivered. Now, look, no one finds it fun to go out and buy a bunch of tuna fish and towels for the kitchen. So that can be done by app. Maybe if you want to experience some new type of food you haven't tried, you go out for that. So we're finding that people have really adopted a new life where, in fact, the Age Lab has an entire research program called Home as Service. Your house is no longer going to simply be a place to live. It's going to be a platform of services. Think of all the strangers that now knock on your door or that you invited in your home electronically and by app and the like. But the last thing, Paige, the other thing we found is that high tech became not the best substitute, but at least a proxy for high touch. Mm -hmm. So where adult children could not take care of their parents at a distance or loved ones at a distance, High-tech filled in the gap. Making sure mom had food in her fridge used to be you going out on Saturday morning to make sure it was filled. Now you can have it delivered. Having medications delivered or having uh, technologies out there, making sure that mom or dad are taking their meds on time. And what's happened is all those systems that beep and buzz and monitor, manage and motivate our lives created a whole new, and this is a term we coined at the lab, virtual assisted living. 
It's actually going to probably enable people to stay in their home, not just for months, but maybe a couple of years longer than we would have ordinarily thinking that assisted living was maybe the next best option. From that technological adoption standpoint, what do you think things are going to look like in the coming decades when Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Zers, as you say, we've reached the end of the alphabet, but eventually those are going to be the older Americans. Do you think that technology adoption will look any different or is it always that, you know, there's always going to be something coming up that slowly makes its way to the top? These are folks now who grew up, you know, using computers, tablets, uh, AI potentially as we, as, uh, as the generations continue, what's it going to change? You know, I got to give it to you. You're the first person that has ever uh, done an interview with me to actually put the proposition, which I think is the right one out there, that things are going to continue to change. So let's let's take that myth on head on, that the millennials and Gen Zers are better at technology. In fact, they even have a name. They're the Digirati. After all, you know, they're permanently bent down with an app in their hand. And I've got daughters and students and whatnot that are that generation. So I like to tease a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, they're going to have as much a challenge, I would suggest, as their baby boomer parents and grandparents and silent generation, great grandparents, whatever it might be. Why? Because the technology is going to continue to change. We found already in the lab that Gen Z, the kids in their late teens, early 20s, are looking at the millennials as digital dinosaurs. Because the first thing a millennial does when they get their phone or their app or whatever it is, is they're ready to swipe. They got their finger ready. Gen Z says, if I can't do this by voice, it's not worth my trouble. So we're seeing, shall we say, the half-life of digital knowledge be far, far shorter than ever before. I would suggest that now uh, what's happening, given the velocity of technology, you're an older user by 30. Yeah, and, and you've made the point as well that millennials are now at the point of turning 40 for those older in that generation. And 40 in some people's mind is, you know, older. Yeah. And and by the way, when we started the lab, we defined 45 as old age, which was fine then because I was under 45. But now I'm not so happy with it. No, in fairness, think about this. By law, age 40 is the protected class for age discrimination in the workplace. So all I can say to the millennials that may be listening, welcome to my island. Well, I'm there. I'm definitely a millennial. I'm, I'm joining that island. Uh, do you think having a, a legal a legal turning point at 40 in that sense, does that add to the stigma? When we were talking about, you know, mistaken assumptions about the older generations, of course, protections against discrimination are important, but does having 40 as that mark, you know, affect how people think about age? You know, it's kind of a Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, scarlet letter on your back. I, I, I think that age discrimination is not only real, It is not only damaging to the individual, it is damaging to the economy and society. And these numbers are made up. Age 40 was considered old decades ago. 65 is retirement or 67 for some was simply made up. So this age discrimination on a number that is highly ambiguous and highly variable. I mean, think about it. You could have a 60-year-old that's out there skydiving and extreme skiing and another 60-year-old that looks like what many of us have in our mind as to what a 90-year-old looks like. So age as a number is a terrible proxy for almost anything. You wrote in Forbes that technological advances may make millennials the most monitored generation in history. Can you tell us about that? 
you know, we already have our parents adopting some of these technologies, but I want you to think about the millennials. In fact, I have to announce here, you'll be the first here that the MIT Age Lab is going to be launching a new website. And we're going to have a lot of blog content on just that kind of question. But think about the following. We go nowhere without our smartphone. And by the way, all those location uh, apps are monitoring where you've been. In fact, I've got a couple apps that remind me, hey, you didn't check in here and you were there two months ago, which somewhere is between convenient and creepy. We are now seeing technologies out there in the effort to keep you well, not simply manage disease, smart toilets that I can best describe as devices. And by the way, these are on the market page. That shall we say, I'll keep this clean for your audience download from the user, if you will, your body weight, your blood pressure, your, are you taking your medication, then upload those data, if you will, uh, to a call center. Um, and frankly, your house is now going to be watching not just who's in your front door, but are you active? Are you walking well? Did your gait change? Have you been oversleeping? These will all be in the name of your health and well-being, but they're going to be monitoring you, managing you, and motivating, whereas the econ economics People like to say, nudging you to do just the right things. So yeah, there's going to be that fine balance between privacy and dignity. So you've, we've talked about that privacy trade-off. Let's also talk about some of the mental health pieces of technology use. Uh, Pew Research did a study in 2019 about the effects of uh, digital changes on our well-being. And the results were a little bit mixed on, you know, the positive side of things. There were factors like connection, education, access to information, commerce, but the negatives included things like stress and digital addiction, information overload. How is that, you know, affecting the older generation right now? And how do you think that'll change as, you know, these younger generations move up? In fact, it was a great article just last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association, known as JAMA, showing that, in fact, older adults are also suffering many of the depressive symptoms that younger people have been accused of having due to their use of everything from Insta to Snap to their office. And they're off of Facebook because, frankly, Facebook has been deemed the, now the social media nursing home. Basically, only your mother and grandmother are going on there. So as a result, younger people are staying away from it because no one wants to show what they did Friday night to their parents on Saturday morning. But the fact of the matter is we're seeing that uh, older people are suffering from many of the same depressive symptoms. And why? Think about it. Many of these apps, as entertaining as some of them are, are keeping you on your couch. And the other thing is very few people ever post online that, you know, life today, not very good. They're only posting the party, the vacation. Look at my grandchildren. And people sitting on their couch going, I'm home alone. No one's invited me to a party. And I haven't seen my grandkids for over a year. Do you think that these changes in technology and especially social media, um, do you think that they're going to become even more prevalent? You mentioned, for example, Facebook is, is now the dinosaur. Ten years ago, it was maybe the, the number one most used of, of these uh, social connection platforms. As you know, these things cycle in and out, what's your outlook for how it's gonna change? I, what we're starting to see in the marketplace is, is a fragmentation. We're starting to see far more social platforms. And you know, from a market perspective, that's probably a good thing, a diversity of competition. I worry about it from a social perspective because it's going to allow us to slice and dice the people that we have those chance collisions with even narrower. Now, one of the things we need to think about in old age, in retirement, not just retirement planning, 
is going back to that notion of our social portfolio. As we age, we lose the places and spaces that help us meet new people. You know, we, we no longer stand by the soccer sidelines, having our kids play, talking to other parents. We, we retire from the workplace where we spend our time with other people or, you know, we, we move out of the education circles and whatnot. So social media has become in many ways a place where we might meet new people. Having more platforms means fewer and fewer people. And many of them may be just like you, which might be reassuring, but life is best when it's spicy having a diversity of people and new chances to meet new folks is part of living well at any age. How do you think technological changes are going to affect the healthcare piece of the question? Costs have continued to rise, but innovations are you know constantly coming out. We've seen a lot of renewed attention to healthcare in the past year and a half, two years. What's your outlook on that? You know, academics and junk TV soap operas have a line that is very popular for both. It's complicated. And so that's what I'll say. It's complicated because of the following. You know, most people look at the United States and say, wow, we're a sick population. And what they do is they count the number of people with chronic conditions. But what they fail to look at is the number of medications, devices, and interventions, and diagnostics that are rapidly being developed to manage chronic conditions that at one point were death sentences. There are some cancers out there that are now considered a chronic condition. Only a few short years ago, the C word cancer was a death sentence. You said goodbye to a loved one just by the very diagnosis. So in that way, it's going to be helping us live longer. But with respect to costs, the cost of living longer because of the expenses around those diagnostics and devices and many of the services that are going to be plugged in around your well-being are not necessarily going to be covered by insurance. They're going to be out of pocket. So a whole new line item, if you will, in retirement or longevity planning, as I call it, is going to be not just the cost of healthcare. That's relatively easy. It's scary, but easy. But what's the cost of well-being? And that's a whole new cost of life. Dr. Joe, your insights on all of this have been so engaging. Thank you for sharing them with us. I'd like to leave you with an opportunity. If our listeners are to walk away from this conversation and really retain one piece of information from everything we've talked about, what would you recommend to them? You know, I'd like them to think about that old age is not about this small segment of their life. It's not a short period for most of us and the like. It's actually an entire life stage. So as you plan for what you think you call retirement, you're actually planning for, as we say at the Age Lab, life tomorrow. Think about what you're going to do every day. Those broad goals are great deems to inspire, but how you live every day is what makes you smile. Plan for that. Prepare for that. Dr. Joe Coughlin of the MIT Age Lab. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for joining us. You can find more on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time.